Go ahead and have a seat. Let's, let's take a second and pray. God, what a privilege and blessing it is to know that, that um, still today, that every, every person who trusts in you um, can and will be saved. So in various ways, um, even this week, we have, we have been prone to trust in ourselves, and I pray that you'd release us of any sense or delusion of self-sufficiency, that we would trust in you in a fresh and a new way this morning. That in the midst of um, every shade of storm and night that we can experience, we are grateful that you, that you are a God who can be trusted, um, that you are a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us not be familiar today with things that we've heard before. Um, one of the challenges every Sunday we come together is to, to be amazed by grace again. And so I pray that through the, the power of your spirit that you'd use your word to pierce our hearts and bring conviction where we are apathetic toward our sin. Make us more like Christ. Give us freedom to be able to walk in the freedom that you have provided through your spirit. God, I pray that you give us joy in that process too. Help us to be humble and teachable and hungry this morning to hear from you. And I pray that we leave here knowing we've been in your presence for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's open to the book of Acts. Um, you can grab a pew Bible if you don't have one with you. If you're on your phone, I'll trust you're using an electronic Bible and you're not on Twitter. Um, and if you haven't grabbed one of these Acts booklets, which is really the, the book of Acts in bound form, it has some note pages, feel free to grab one of those. There's still several left out in the foyer. We'd love for you to have one of those if you don't have one. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we'll be uh, doing covering verses uh, 1 through 21, and we'll get there in just a moment. But uh, when I was younger, when I was in junior high, I was going into eighth grade, and I, I played basketball, and I moved schools from seventh to eighth grade, and so I had a new coach in eighth grade, and there's a little bit of expectation on our team, small town, southern Illinois, seemed like at every age there was always excitement around basketball, it didn't matter how old you were, but this, uh, this season, going into eighth grade, uh, we had practiced for months, and leading up to the first game, and we're about a week out from our first game, and we hadn't learned any plays, like no offense at all. Like we just ran and played and ran some more. So I went to my coach and I was, I was both kind of curious and concerned. I said, hey coach, are we going to learn some X's and O's? Are we going to learn some plays or what are we doing? And he just looked at me and said, hey, we, don't, we actually don't run plays. We just full court press and you guys play your game. I was like, all right, let's do it. So we went 24-0, undefeated that season, right? No, no rounds of applause, please. I'm, but eighth grade basketball, but it was something weird about that moment because I went from curious and confused to feeling like uniquely just kind of enabled to play the game that I had, had learned to play and, and we were able to play with some success. And what we're going to see this morning in the book of Acts and this moment in this story is that you could say there's been a whole host of people and moments of confusion and curiosity. So going back to the end of the Gospel of Luke, if you haven't been with us, the book of Acts is basically like volume two to Luke's work. The Gospel of Luke is volume one. The book of Acts is volume two. Uh, they're written by the same author. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, what we see is that the disciples and various others who had followed Jesus were both curious and confused. 
Many of them were despondent because they believed that Jesus was supposed to be the guy, and here he was crucified. And so over a period of 40 days and his appearance after his resurrection, he appeared and preached the kingdom of God to people. And part of what he did is he spoke clarity into their confusion and their curiosity. So as we go from the book of Luke to the book of Acts, we now see the disciples, the apostles gathered. They're now grown to a group of 120 people. And you could say they're still, I'm, I'm sure, very curious about what was going to happen. So Jesus had promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that, that they were going to receive power, that they weren't going to know the timing of his return, but what they would receive is power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so for a period of days, what we looked at last week is they waited. They prayed. They seemed to study scripture in the Old Testament. They replaced Judas by way of seeing God reveal himself in the Old Testament and the plans to replace Judas, but they waited. And you have to wonder, what did they think was going to happen? They knew power was going to come, but what was it going to feel like? Were they going to see something? Were they going to experience something? Were they going to feel something? And I think it's fair to say there's probably a fair amount of confusion and curiosity and we're also going to see as we go into this story that what happens when the Spirit of God does come is that those who watch it take place were also confused and curious, wondering what it is that they were actually observing. And so we're going to dive in this morning, and let's start with verse 1 in chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 21 in their entirety, and then we'll kind of go back and journey through them a little more individually. Let's read together. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's word. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And he divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes Joel in chapter 2 of the prophet of Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the, great day, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so we're going to dive in looking at Pentecost first. So we have to kind of force ourselves to go into like the cultural moment. So Pentecost was a significant, significant day for Jewish people. So it's one of three feasts that they were called to observe, three major feasts they were called to observe. And so in Exodus chapter 23, is a real quick version as we hear that in Exodus 23. It says, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, which is Passover. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, which is Pentecost, or the feast of the first fruits of your labor, the first fruits of the harvest, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field, the fruit of your labor. So because we're not Jewish, it's a little bit difficult to feel the significance of this moment. So Kent Hughes comments on this in his commentary on Acts, how significant this would have been if we were Jewish, coming to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so he says this about it. He says, Pentecost was the best attended of the great feasts because traveling conditions based on the time of year were at their best. There was never a more cosmopolitan gathering in Jerusalem than this one, which is significant. So if you remember back the promise of Jesus, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to receive power. You're going to be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere. So what happens now is you have Jewish people from all of the known world converging on Jerusalem. And so it makes sense that that would be the moment that God is going to pour forth his spirit. And in doing so, what we're going to see in just a moment is the gospel goes forth to all of these different nations who are then going to go and disperse to be his witnesses in all the regions that he already promised they would be his witnesses. And so everybody's there. If you ever had a party and you're getting ready to start and you see everyone is present, you're like, now is the time. And so we see that the significance of this moment, you have Jews from everywhere, devout men from every nation under heaven. And what happens next in verse 2? Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. So it was the sound of a significant wind, which symbolizes the, the power of God. So God's power came, and it made this sound like a mighty rushing wind. It was power to, to bring life. So the Greek word here that we see in this passage is the same Greek word used in Genesis 2, where God breathes, where the wind comes, the breath of God, as it were, to breathe life to humans for the very first time in Genesis 2, verse 7, which is really notable. Why? Because without the Spirit of God, there's no life spiritually in any one of us, period. Without the Spirit of God within us, we have no life spiritually speaking. We're all spiritually bankrupt, left to ourselves. We're rebellious against God. We need the Spirit of God to transform and to change us, to move us to, to want to please God with our lives and with our days, this also echoes of the wind of Ezekiel's vision. We talked about this a few weeks ago. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there's this massive vision that Ezekiel gets. And it's this valley full of dry bones. 
And what happens to bring those bones to life? A wind, a breath, same word, blows upon these bones to bring them to life. And we should be reminded that all of us apart from the work of God are like those dead bones. In desperate need of the Spirit of God to breathe life into us. That we might have life spiritually and otherwise to please him. Where God, God's wind blows, it brings change. So the, the sound of this wind came, and then secondly, the, f- the fire came. So if you look back in verse 3, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So here's what I want to do for a moment. I want to talk a little bit about fire and the significance of this moment. So if you just look at the book of Exodus, you can look a lot of places. You can survey how significant the picture of fire is for the presence of God. Fire symbolized the presence of God, his glory among his people. Let me give you a few examples. Exodus chapter 3. It was a burning bush, one of the favorite Sunday school stories, right? God appears to Moses in a burning bush. A bush was burning, but not burning away. And God speaks to him, says this is holy ground, gives him his instructions, says he's going to rescue his people. So the presence of God was in this bush, in the fire. Secondly, the pillar of fire, Exodus 13, they come out of Egypt. The Israelites do, rescued by God. And how does he lead them? Through a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. So the presence of God through and in this fire leads his people as they come out of captivity and into the wilderness. So you see it in the burning bush, the pillar of fire. You see it at Mount Sinai. If you can picture as an Israelite sitting at the base of Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, what dropped down on the top of the mountain? Fire and smoke. And here's what it says in a couple different places. Exodus 19 Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because why? Because the Lord had descended on it in fire. God's presence drops down into human time and space on top of this mountain and it's fire. Exodus 24, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. All right, burning bush, pillar of fire, Mount Sinai. Then you have the tabernacle. This unique tent where the presence of God came and dwelt and where his people would sacrifice to him. As they traveled around this traveling tent, what signified the presence of God was fire coming down by night. It says, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all of Israel. And then we have this evidence of how significant fire is because God himself is called fire. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 12. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So, but here's the here's this significant moment that's happening right now. So if, if you're a Jewish person, and actually in between the Old and New Testament, the intertestamental period, uh, I forgot to mention this the first service, the Jewish people began to recognize the, the Feast of Pentecost as also the moment where the law was given. 50 days after Passover. So what's significant about that? Well, you have the law coming down to the people of God at Mount Sinai. Now you have this, what used to be the temporary fire of God among and around God's people and now resting on each person individually. That is significant. Substantial picture if you're Jewish in the moment. Because you know the significance of fire. You're thinking about the law. How was it given at Mount Sinai? You're thinking about the fire, the glory of God on the mountain. And now it's resting on people. 
So what used to be only dwelling among or around God's people is now upon and within his people. The presence and the power of God and his spirit used to come temporarily, but now resides in his people permanently to give them power for newness of life. And Jesus said this in one of the many places he talked about the spirit in John 14. He says, I'm going to send you a helper and he's going to be with you forever. He's not going to leave you. He's going to He's going to dwell with you. He's going to be in you. That's that's the permanent promise of the believer. It's not just some waxing and waning of the presence of God. That he resides within us. We are now the temple of God. Where the spirit of the glory of God resides in his people. It's this profound picture that I don't think we quite understand the magnitude of. But Pentecost gives us a chance to kind of wade into what the Jewish people would have felt and seen and experienced in that moment. But they were completely immersed, these believers, filled with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, both John the Baptist and Jesus has spoken of, was now. It's in this moment. And what happens next? They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so there's a whole lot of places where we could talk about tongues and what it is and what it isn't. There'll be other places in Acts where we'll get to it as well. But the primary meaning here, what's being talked about here, is that these individuals were given the ability to speak in languages that they did not know. And how do we know that? Because the reaction from everybody who is present is, how can this be? They don't know my language. But I hear the mighty works of God being proclaimed in my language. And so the word of God goes forth through these simple people because you hear this note of Galileans in verse 7. Look there with me. It says, they were amazed and astonished. Why? At least in part, they said to one another, are not all these people speaking Galileans? So Galileans were renowned for being simple, uncultured people. But they saw them speaking a massive number of languages all speaking of the wonderful works of God so that those in their individual language could hear and understand and perceive the glory of God and all that he had done. Can I give you some encouragement here? This, like, we're all simple people, every single one of us in this room. We're all broken people and we are all very simple people. And if you're a Christian today, you are a simple person filled with supernatural power. That's good news. That's good news for us as simple people. That God makes a living, as it were, using simple people by way of his supernatural power. And that's present in this story. These simple Galileans. So how could this be? These people don't even barely know their own language. How are they speaking in my language? Right? Simple people with supernatural power. At a moment when Jerusalem is filled with Jews from every nation under heaven, God uses his witnesses to propel his mighty works outwards so that those people would themselves become witnesses for the known world. And there's some symbolism here that I don't think is a, <clears throat> a stretch and I think could even be said it's appropriate. So when you think about Pentecost, it was a... <clears throat> It was a celebration of the first fruits of the harvest, a literal harvest. So these devout men come from all nations under heaven to celebrate a real harvest. But they themselves become a spiritual harvest. 
the first fruits, as it were, of the Spirit of God moving and saving people. Because what we're going to see next week at the end of this sermon of Peter's, what happens? 3,000 people come to faith. The first fruits of the Spirit of God saving people in this gospel era happens at Pentecost, the celebration, the feast of first fruits. So these people themselves become really the first fruits of God's Spirit saving people in his plans. And what a beautiful picture. And you see the, the varying types and places these people are from. I think it also gives us this picture that throws us back a little bit to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Because if you remember, the disciples were confused about the kingdom. Because they were saying, hey, is it right now that you're going to basically restore Israel? Their minds were on this geopolitical, nationalistic kingdom. And Jesus says, it's, it's not for you to know. Like, you're not going to know the time, but what will happen is I'm going to build my kingdom out of every nation. It goes well beyond some geopolitical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so there's a broad impact that the gospel has to bring in people from every single corner of the world. One global kingdom with one glorious king, the Lord Jesus. And the Spirit's primary manifestation of power right here was consistent with Jesus' promise. Because remember, the promise was you're going to receive power to do what? To be my witnesses. You're not just going to receive power, generally speaking, but power to proclaim, power to be my witnesses, to tell people what I've said and what I've done. That's exactly what happens here. The very first sign of new life through the Spirit is proclamation. The mighty works of God coming from the mouths of people who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And people's response is curiosity and confusion. They look on like, what, like, what does this mean? Like, what do we make of this? Uh, I drive on Castle Hayden Road sometimes up there by the airport. One of my daughters plays volleyball up there. And there's this, there's this strange truck that somebody put in a really strange position. So the back of the truck is up on like this four foot high rock. The front of it is on something else. And you look at it, you're like, how did that thing get up there? How many of you have seen Stonehenge before? Pictures of it. Yeah, Stonehenge is this collection of rocks that were stacked on each other. And you look at them like, how do these, I mean, there's no person that could pick up these rocks. This is confusing and it's curious. And that's exactly what people thought when they saw the Galileans, this 120 plus people speaking foreign languages, even though they didn't know them. Some people just simply say in their amazement and perplexity, what does this mean? And others mock them and say they're filled with wine. Here's something I'd say to all of us as believers. If you're a Christian in this room, it's not unique to first century Christianity to be odd in the culture. Like there should be a biblical oddity to every single follower of Christ in this world. There's a curious, like how do I make sense of this? This person, what they say, what they do, how they treat me in light of how I treat them, their values, their pursuits. Like how, what does this mean? In some ways, I would say that should be a common question that comes up as we're faithful to be God's witnesses and live according to the scriptures, that there's an oddity to the people of God. It's always been the case. And so we should embrace in a sense that biblical oddity that and it might cause other people to look on with curiosity and say, what does this mean? We had some neighbors years ago who we started sharing Christ with as a couple, as a family 
And they, they eventually came to faith a few years later. And it came to a place about a year in where they just came to us. We were just trying to be available to them and we're being who we are in Jesus and loving each other as a couple. And, it, and we went on a walk on the beach and my friend Jeremy looked at me. He's like, hey, will you just explain like what you believe? I was like, hey, tee it up. Let's go for it. But really it was born out of is just like, we're just being who we are in Jesus, like imperfectly by the grace of God. But we're curious to the world. They don't have an explanation for the Spirit of God. What does this mean? And others certainly will marginalize us, like in confusion, and even make accusation against us. And ultimately, here we see that you know, the believers are led to self-control. They're not out of control. Even this, this accusation of drunkenness. Like, the, w there's a whole lot of confusion, I would say, about Pentecostalism. But in this moment, there's a lot that could be said, but the very little I'll say this morning is that what we see here is that the Spirit of God leads into clarity, not into confusion. Because clarity is preached into confused hearts. What does this mean? Are they drunk? And Peter gets up and he preaches clarity into the confusion. The Spirit of God brings Clarity and not confusion. And what does Peter say? Verse 14, Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his, vo his voice and addressed them, excuse me, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So he, he lays down his first sermon. The first of many messages we see in the book of Acts. We're really going to cover this half because basically what Peter does is he explains to them. They ask the question, what does this mean? Maybe they're drunk. Peter stands up and he addresses their question. He brings clarity into the confusion and curiosity. He starts by saying, hey, they're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. A lot of people drink, but most people don't drink at 9 a.m. They're not drunk. But here's what is happening. The words of Joel from years before are coming true right now. This is what the prophet Joel spoke of. <clears throat> Verse 16, he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, sons, daughters, young and old men, see visions, old men, dream dreams, on servants and females and male alike, he'll pour out his spirit. So this is what was spoken of years before by Joel. And it's coming to fulfillment now. And Luke actually changes some of Joel's timing language because Joel actually says, it shall come to pass if you go to Joel chapter two. And Luke changes it to in the last days. We're in that moment now. What's happening is what Joel saw from a, a future standpoint is now upon us. In these last days, God will pour out his spirit. So between the first and second coming of Jesus, we live in the age of the spirit, this messianic age where the spirit of God empowers his people still to be used, to be witnesses, to be sent out, to make Christ known while there is still time. While there's still time, and time will run out. It is an age of opportunity for us and Peter declares, what Joel said is what you see. In essence, this is that. What you see in Joel, this is that that you see right now. The Spirit of God coming upon his people. The last days began at the day of Pentecost, and they'll culminate at Jesus' return. 
You see some end of time sort of language. If you look back at the text, you know, there's some apocalyptic type language in verse 19. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, a great and magnificent day. My comment here would be that some believe that this was fulfilled at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. If you remember, if you read that story, the earth goes dark and the earth shakes. There's, there's cosmic activity. Some believe that that was fulfilled back then, but the, the inclusion of the day of the Lord kind of shoots us ahead. And this is what you'll see sometimes in the Bible. There's a near and a far fulfillment of prophecy. I think this is one of those moments where you see a, an already not yet sort of fulfillment of prophecy and it seems to be what Luke is talking about. Let me just highlight two things about the spirit of God when it's given here. One is it's overwhelmingly generous. I'll pour out my spirit on people. So there's no indication of just a little bit, like a little drop. Those little droppers, it just barely kind of ekes out a little bit of liquid. In North Carolina, we get to experience different types of rain. So a week or so ago, there was this strange mist that if you walked outside, it was hard to see through, but it was really gentle. It wasn't really coming down. It was more coming at your face. We get those sometimes. Sometimes we get a, a downpour. And this picture here, I would submit is not so much like a mist, it's like a monsoon. Like the, the heavens opened up with heavenly abandon to pour power upon the people of God. No reservation. And here's some encouragement. Like one of the greatest encouragements I think I could give you pastorally is when you have the spirit of God, you have everything you need. Everything you need for life and godliness. You're not missing some part of the spirit if anything's deficient, it's your submission to him. You have everything you need to live out this life in a way that pleases Christ. And that's such a joy and such a securing truth for the people of God. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in counseling situations that culminate ultimately in this reality of having to strike someone in the heart to say, you have everything you need to walk in obedience. Everything. Second Peter chapter 1. We have all that we need for life and godliness. I think that's part of what we see here is this, this extravagant, full pouring out of the Spirit of God reminds us that we have everything we need, but also specifically reminds us that we've been empowered to speak. Generously given the Spirit of God to pour forth generous praise and accolades to the God of heaven who deserves the praises of the nations. The work of the Spirit is generous. It's also universal in this sense. It's not dependent on outward status. So you might note from this list of people who receive the outpouring of the Spirit of God, look there with me just for a second. In verse 17, starting there. I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters. There's no indication that it's dependent on gender or sex. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, young and old alike. It's not dependent on age. Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants, on both slave and free, servant and master, the Spirit of God falls. It's not dependent on social status, socioeconomics, personality. But it falls on all flesh. 
Verse 21, it says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so here's what I'd say to clarify what I just said a second ago. It's universal in the sense that it's not dependent on outward status, okay? So the salvation of God does not require position or status, but it does require readiness. It does require that you call on the name of God to be saved. It requires ownership of the individual to respond to the invitation of God. And we'll see that next week in Peter's sermon. The Bible upholds the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. You see them both in one single sentence that Chris read earlier. This Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. In one sentence, you see Mary, this mystery of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And although it doesn't depend on status, it does require readiness from each one of us. And we'll see that in the people who respond to this sermon. At the end of Peter's sermon, the response is, what should we do with what we just heard? How should we respond? If you hear anything from me this morning, every time you read your Bible, that should be your posture. What should I do now? How should, what, should, what should I do? Like, how should I respond, particularly if you are not in Christ and you hear the message of salvation, the best thing you could say is, what should I do to respond to this good news? Because that's what happens when these 3,000 believers come to faith. But for us as believers, every time we see, hear, read, meditate on the word of God, it should also lead us to the same place of like, Lord, what would you have me do now? How do you want me to respond to your word in this moment? And maybe for some of you this morning, as I close off, there might be some of you in this room this morning that maybe, maybe you're among those who are confused and curious. I, I don't know. Maybe you, f- you think about the global kingdom of Jesus. You're like, I just don't, I don't think I'm a part of that. I've never really, never really called upon God for salvation. I've never really considered him my king, much less my treasure. Then I, I don't know any other way to say it, but just, I plead you to run to Jesus. Call on, call on him while you still have time. Calling on him requires seeing your need for saving. Every single one of us have gone astray. Every single one of us. There's no exception. All of us have broken God's law and offended a holy God. As a result, the Bible says we are justly condemned in his sight. It's an inescapable judgment that we have. There's nothing we can do to right that wrong. But the mystery and the wonder of the cross is that everything that you and I are in our failure, Jesus became when he hung on the cross. And when he died as our substitute, we gazed at him in faith, we now become everything that he was. His perfect life attributed to us, given to our account. So not only our deficit is taken away, we're given an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the, that's the message of the gospel. And the call is call on him while you have time. Stop trying to save yourself. Stop trusting in other things. Run to Jesus. And if you've done that before, maybe you feel like a dissonance in your heart. Like, I don't know if I'm submitted to Jesus the way I hear described here. I don't know if I feel the power of spirit in my life. It may be that you're flirting with sin. You need to submit to Jesus. In all things, as your master and as your king and as your treasure. That you love him more than you love the world. And, and the gospel preaches the clarity of the, the message of Christ into our confusion and our curiosity. 
And for us as God's people, as we, this, this series in Acts is titled Sent because it really has that picture of the, the word of God moving out through the people of God for the glory of God in the nations. John Stott, commenting on the book of Acts and this moment at Pentecost says this. He says that we live right now as believers until the Lord returns or we go to be with him. We live in a long day of opportunity. It's like one long day. From Jesus' first coming to his second, we live in an age of opportunity that's shrinking because of our own temporal life and because of the fact that Jesus is gonna return. There's not gonna be any more time left. So do we see it as an opportunity to make him known? Like, do I embrace every single day? Do I ask for opportunities to make Jesus known? Because that's why he's put me here. That's why he saved me to begin with. Not just to enjoy my salvation as glorious as it is, but to give it away. To make him known right now in this day. And Paul, and I'll close with this. Paul folds in the same words from Joel in Joel chapter 2 into something he said in Romans chapter 10. And he kind of folds it into the mission of the people of God. So let me just say this as I close off. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's good news. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So there's no distinction based on social class or status. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the question. It's asked of the believer, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For it is written, how blessed, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. From big to small, from young to old, men, women, from servants to CEOs. The gospel is God's power to save people from every social class and every nation and every season until he returns or we get to be with him. And it's our responsibility to take that message that people might turn and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So let me pray to that end and we're gonna sing to close off our time together. I want you bow your heads and just consider for a moment maybe the ways that God has challenged you and moved in your heart through his word this morning. I encourage you as you consider that, as you consider just maybe the ways you're called to respond, if you find yourself in a place where you know in fact that you're walking in sin in some way, in various ways, that you confess that. Confess means to agree with God that it's wrong and the joy of the believer is that when we confess our sins that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if there's anyone in this room and maybe you, you feel like you fit the bill for the one who's on the outside looking in that you've never truly surrendered to Christ. Maybe you've been familiar with Jesus your whole life and maybe you've been to church your whole life, but you know you never truly surrendered fully and completely. The Lord has graciously allowed you to be here this morning to hear from his word, to hear an appeal through his spirit, through his word that you would call on him that you might be saved. At the end of our days when we stand before God, we'll either find ourselves trusting in ourselves or trusting in Christ. 
So I just, I plead with you this morning that you'd trust in him. Find him to be sufficient. Find him to be your delight more and more as you walk with him. And God, I pray for each one of us as we finish our time this morning together that we would grow in our submission to your word, that we grow in our submission to your commission, that we would go and make disciples of all nations, that we'd be your witnesses through your power to the nations, that many, many more would come to faith in the Lord Jesus, that the waters of baptism would be full and splash in constantly because of people giving their lives to Christ. Lord, you choose to use us, not because you need to, but because it delights you to redeem and to enlist your people for your purposes. So help us to be those who are joyfully submitted to those purposes and to that plan. We love you. We have reason to sing. So help us even now to sing this last song as if we believe every single word of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together and we'll sing.